0: If you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to Psalm 32. Um, one of the reasons why I chose to preach from this text this morning was because I thought if uh, one day my son were to ask me uh, what the day of his baptism was like and what I, I said there, I would want uh, the things I said to be of, of first importance. And I think it's uh, what we'll see in Psalm 32 is not only of first importance for him, uh, but it's also of first importance for all of us as well, and so I hope that over the next 30 minutes or so, you'll come to see why. So let's look at Psalm 32 together. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we come to this text, I pray that you would help us to see clearly the wonderful things that you tell us in it. Help us, Lord, to see clearly how this text points to the hope that we have in Jesus and help me to communicate that as I ought. But Lord, we pray as well that you would give us hearts to receive and to submit to this teaching and to delight in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this year, Arthur Brooks wrote a column in The Atlantic entitled, The Path to Happiness is Narrow but Easy. And he begins the article by referencing the opening line of one of Tolstoy's great works, in which he writes, Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Now, Brooks develops the point that positive things, such as happiness, tend to be simpler and more cohesive in their concept. So while there might be a, a few basic ingredients, for example, that make up a happy marriage, we understand that there are 10,000 ways that you can have a miserable marriage. Happiness, says Brooks, is not hard. It's about getting a few things right. But what is the path to happiness? Well, Brooks cites a 2008 study done by two psychologists that asked the question, what do happy people do? And the answer that these psychologists came up with was that happy people socialize. You give your attention to relationships. Now, even as an introvert, I would concede that rich relationships are an important part of happiness. However, as it stands, I would say that Brook's prescription doesn't go deep enough. And one of the reasons it doesn't go deep enough is because there's a problem that sabotages our ability to engage in meaningful, deep connection with other people. There's a problem that, that sabotages our relationships with others. And even more, there's a problem that sabotages our relation, relationship with the God who has made us for relationship. And that problem is Guilt. Let me explain. Guilt pulls us away from relationships. Uh, Suppose you've done something wrong and deep down you know it. You know you've done something wrong. Do you feel more or less close to the people around you or to the people you care about? Well typically you tend to feel less close. Why? Because I'm afraid of being found out. I'm afraid of being called out. I'm afraid of, of being exposed. I feel miserable, and guilt works against any meaningful connection because I then choose to keep a distance to protect myself. Now, this is true in our relationship with other people. It's also true in our relationship with God. Our guilt disrupts meaningful relationships, or meaningful fellowship, rather, with God for two reasons. First, because our guilt separates us from God, because He's a holy God, and He can't stand sin. And secondly, because our guilt drives us from God, just like Adam and Eve in the garden who hid themselves from God's view. God made us to find joy in relationship with him, but our guilt blocks the path to happiness. Now, King David, who wrote the psalm we just read, would agree that the path to happiness is, in a sense, easy but narrow. But there's a deeper need than just relationship, he would say, because there's a deeper problem than just disconnectedness. We have a guilt problem, King David would say. If King David wrote uh, the column for The Atlantic, he'd put it differently. He'd say, if you want to be happy, if you want to be truly, deeply, enduringly happy, you have to be forgiven first. This is what David tells us in Psalm 32, that true happiness is found as we uncover our sin before God, so that God can cover our sins in forgiveness for us. So to see that this morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at David's condition, then David's cure, and then our response. Now, the Bible says if you want to find happiness, you need to first get clarity about sin, and you need to get honest about sin. Now, you hear me say that, you think, that sounds counterintuitive. Maybe even that sounds a little uh, outdated. Sin, we've moved past that. You might uh, think to yourself, talk of sin uh, makes us bristle. It makes us feel uncomfortable. It it sort of feels like we're being judgmental, like we're we're using moral claims to exert authority over uh, other people. We're trying to control them uh, with this talk of sin. But the fact of the matter is that most people throughout human history, including today, hold to some doctrine of sin. It doesn't matter whether you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim or something else. Even in secular culture, where God is not openly discussed, we have a strong sense of right and wrong. We haven't moved past a doctrine of sin, we've just rebranded it. Maybe you've seen the most recent uh, promotional video uh, from uh, Apple. In that video, there's uh, nervous executives who are meeting in in sort of their C-suite offices, and suddenly they're visited by Mother Nature. And Mother Nature comes sweeping in with her executive assistant, and she demands updates on what Apple has done to reduce the harm that it's doing to the environment. How much water are you using? How many trees have you planted? How much carbon is this facility emitting? The video, whether they meant it or not, is thoroughly religious. You've sinned against Mother Nature. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to make atonement to satisfy Mother Nature? Now, don't mishear me. As Christians, I believe that uh, we're called to be good stewards of this planet, but my point here is that our culture hasn't actually rejected sin in its entirety. We've just displaced God as the one who sets the standard for sin, and we've displaced God as the one who is ultimately sinned against. Or let me give you another example. Consider uh, how sometimes we say things like, I just need to forgive myself. Maybe you've said that before. Right, this is spoken from a place of misery. I'm just, I'm struggling with, with guilt. Uh, I failed as a, a parent. I've, I've wrecked this uh, relationship. I just can't seem to move past what I've done. I just need to forgive myself. Now This time it's not mother nature whose pardon we ultimately seek, but our own. By our own standard, we sense that we are guilty. And here's the thing. We're right we understand something of our own condition and yet for so many people we we just can't explain it we realize we just can't simply get over this feeling of guilt that we have but if i'm the one who's done something egregious or done something terrible or just done something wrong how can i be trusted to properly deal with it how can i be the one to forgive it It sort of seems like putting the criminal in the judge's seat, having him bang the gavel and declare not guilty. How is that right? But the point is, underlying this sense that we need to be forgiven is is a, a nagging sense that there is something that we need to be forgiven for. That we're guilty. But we struggle to know what that means, and we struggle to know how are we to deal with that. Now, if we're vague about the problem, we'll be vague about the cure. And that's why it's important that on the path to happiness, first we get clear on what we mean by sin. The Bible's not vague about the problem that we face. Psalm 32 is especially helpful in explaining for us what the problem is and explaining what sin is. Maybe you notice the songwriter used three Uh, different words but three words that we're getting at sort of the same thing in the opening verses that help us to understand what do we mean by sin what are the different aspects of sin when we talk about it and the words that the psalmist uses are transgression and sin and iniquity now transgression here in our psalm means something like breaking an agreement or uh, engaging in an act of of rebellion uh, breaking some sort of Uh, uh, expectation or understanding it's a throwing off or a rejecting of authority it's like a a country overthrowing a a king or it's like a child looking at a parent and and blatantly breaking right A, a family rule that's that's a transgression and in the bible transgression specifically refers to our human rebellion against god and against his standard for living and this rebellion this this uh this going against how God has said we should live results in a deep breach or a fracture in the relationship between us as his creatures and God as the creator. So all sin involves in some way me saying that God shouldn't be in charge anymore, but that I should. The psalmist also uses the word sin in verse one. The word for sin means here uh, missing the target or missing the mark. So sin involves a relationship that has been breached in in terms of transgression. It also involves a standard that has been missed. God is the maker of all things determines how we are to live, and when we fail to meet the mark, whether that's we fall short or whether it's, it's when we go too far, we've sinned. And the third word that the psalmist uses to describe our condition or our problem is iniquity. So if uh, transgression spotted a, uh, uh, was highlighting a broken relationship and sin highlighted a mis-target, iniquity is getting at a corrupted person. The psalmist is saying that there is, there's something crooked, there's something twisted in us. So notice how the, the psalmist doesn't have a sort of flat 2D definition of what sin is. He says sin is relational, but it's more than relational. Sin is, is failure, but it's more than failure. Sin's corruption, but it's more than corruption. Sin is always against God, and it's a failure failure to live up to his standard or any violation of that standard. And sin renders us guilty. Sin also makes us miserable. Look at verses 3 and 4. There was a time, David says, when he kept his sin under wraps. He wasn't honestly acknowledging the problem that uh, he faced and as a result he found himself miserable under the burden of his guilt the guilt was sapping his his strength just like you know when you step out from an air conditioning building into the humid hot 100 fahrenheit degree august day in michigan right you just suddenly feel oh, no strength that's that's what david's condition was like when he kept his sin under wraps he was restless he was uncomfortable he was groaning He felt like God had set himself against him. I once visited a man uh, who was a good illustration of this. He was a man who knew that he was dying. And he wanted to speak with me about something from his past that he felt deeply guilty about. It was something that he had uh, covered up for many years. Uh, But covering it up hadn't fixed the problem and it didn't give him any relief. The guilt festered. Nothing he had done in his life could relieve him of this nagging guilt. Maybe you can relate. One pastor I listened to on this passage said, even if the only standard that we were held to was our own, and it's not, but even if the only standard we were held to was our own, deep down we would still know that there would be a voice in our head that says hypocrite, failure. And guess what? The voice is probably right. Now, certainly, there's occasions of false guilt. We can feel guilty about things that we shouldn't feel guilty about, about things that weren't our fault, that we're not responsible for. But what happens when the voice isn't wrong? We need to taste the bitterness of sin for what it is, one old writer said, so that we can taste the sweetness of the cure. So what's the cure? Well, when confronted with our sin, we have a tendency to minimize our guilt or suppress our guilt or deny our guilt, right? To, to move on, we shrink the uh, size of our offense just so that we can pack it neatly away out of sight. We don't really want to think about it anymore. It's not that big a deal. Or maybe by strength of will or by distraction, uh, we are going to drown out the accusing voice. And we might do that uh, with vice or we might do it with virtue, What our experience of guilt cries out for, what it is that we long for, is the very thing that the psalmist mentions in verses 1 and 2. Forgiveness. But not just any forgiveness, not fake or shallow forgiveness. We long for the authoritative declaration from outside of ourselves that releases us from guilt. Now we just looked at three words that David used to explain his uh, sinful condition, right? Sin, transgression, iniquity. There he gave us a sense of the breadth of the problem. Now we see three words that David uses to describe the breadth of the cure. David speaks of his transgressions as being forgiven, his sins being covered, and his iniquity as not being counted against him. So what do these mean? That sin is forgiven means that it's carried away sort of like picking up and carrying out uh, the trash someone told me a story this week of uh, a child who threw up in a store uh, onto the carpet it was really nasty uh, and and the, the floor was uh, they had all these carpet squares that were on the floor and so the employee just walked over ripped up the carpet square puke and all took it threw it in the garbage end of story right replaced the carpet square it's gone never to be seen again that's wonderful the forgiveness that David has in view is like that. God picks up your sin. He puts it in the trash bin not to be seen again. He removes it. He carries it away. Now the forgiveness in view is also here described like a covering. God takes your sin and he hides them out of view. When God forgives our sin, he takes them and he says they're covered over. They're erased from the record. Not to be brought into remembrance anymore and the forgiveness in view here also involves a not counting our sin against us here the language is, is more judicial it's it's legal it's it's about your rap sheet if we can put it that way god would be just to read out every one of david's sins ever committed and condemn him on that basis guilty but he doesn't he doesn't God's forgiveness means that he has all the evidence that he needs for a conviction, but he doesn't press the case. It's no wonder that David uh, cries out, blessed is the person whom God has dealt with in this way. Happy is the person whose sins are forgiven. Happy is the woman against whom God does not count iniquity. The guilt that had made David miserable and ruptured his fellowship with God, God is gone once for all, never to come back. Now, the question is, how do we come to experience this blessedness of the forgiveness of our sins? How do we move from the misery in verses uh, 3 and 4 to the happiness in verses 1 and 2? Well, the answer begins with honest confession. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. In verse 1, David says that God covered his sins. This only happens after David did not cover his sin. Chris Rash sums up the point this way. Either David covers up his sin or God covers up his sin. He and we cannot have it both ways. The moment David stops his own cover-up, God does his forgiving cover-up. And we can try to continue to cover up our sin and deal with it like David uh, has done in verses 3 and 4. We can downplay our guilt. We can dismiss it. We can come up with excuses for it. We can do that. But David says, I only ever found blessed relief from my guilt when I uncovered my sin before God, when I confessed it. I think one of the reasons we resist confessing our sin is because we find it too difficult, too, too painful. It's just too ugly. We can't bear to look in the mirror and see ourselves sins and all. I think this is why we like uh, photo albums and Instagram, right? Right? These are carefully selected mementos of of us at our best. Uh, Our photo feeds typically don't have pictures of us yelling at the kids, right? Or, this is me when I sent off an angry email, right? We wanna see ourselves at our most presentable, but neither downplaying nor dismissing our guilt actually deals with it. Instead, we're engaged in serious self-deception. I'm not quarrelsome, I'm just a straight shooter. Maybe I didn't do things exactly right, but that person did it far worse. Uh, Or as one politician recently glossed, I messed up. It's just a mistake. No. David says, blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. We need to be honest about ourselves before God about our sin if we want to experience the happiness that comes from being forgiven. We need to aim to see our sin as God sees it. We need to strive to speak about our sin as God speaks about it. Then and only then will the sin that has disrupted our loving fellowship with God be properly dealt with. Notice how David puts all of his sin on the table, so to speak. Uh, he, he speaks thoroughly about his sin. He, he uses all the words that, that uh, we, we've mentioned. He speaks of his sin as, as transgression, as guilt, as iniquity, He acknowledges the scope of his sin. He got honest about it. He didn't cover his iniquity. This doesn't mean that David took out an ad in the Jerusalem Times to to publish everything about this. Public sins ought to be confessed publicly, but private sins dealt with privately. But neither did David go into self-defense mode. He willingly laid bare his sinful condition before God, and he confessed these things to the Lord. And what's God's response? St. Augustine put it wonderfully, the word of confession is scarcely in his mouth before the wound is healed. It's as if God, having brought us to see and to say our sin, God now jumps at the chance to forgive us. There's an eagerness in God to deal with our sin truly, deeply, to, to get the stain finally out. When I was about to ask suzanne out on our first date uh i was a bundle of nerves uh, for a a variety of reasons kind of felt like i was putting myself out there i wasn't sure exactly what to say right i just being honest i felt a little sick to my stomach Uh, she was very gracious Uh, you know guys maybe you know what this is like maybe you've asked a girl out before uh, but maybe you're a little nervous about that and so then you go and you uh, ask uh, the girl's friend hey hypothetically speaking uh, if, if so, you know, if someone like me kind of were to ask, you know, Susie out, you think she'd say yes? Hey, what are we doing there? We're sort of testing the waters. What's the response going to be? Am I going to get rejected? Well, when it comes to confessing our sin before God, we thankfully don't have to wonder what type of confession or what type of reception we'll get. David tells us, if we come to God in prayer and, and say, oh God, I realize who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I've done. It's miserable. It's wicked. You are right to despise it. But will you forgive me? There is no wondering what his answer will be. He gives it to us. Yes, he says. Yes, I will forgive you. No matter how great or terrible your sin is, if you trust him with your sin, he says, yes, I will forgive you. I will blot out any record Of those sins and I won't hold them against you. But how can this be? Does God merely write off our sin or just decide he's just going to dismiss it? Well, no. The Apostle Paul later in the Bible helpfully explains to us how Psalm 32 works, how God can forgive us, because he quotes from Psalm 32 in Romans 4. Paul points to our psalm to make the point that God removes our sin And he counts us as righteous in his sight, not because of anything we do. God sees us as righteous, not even because we've confessed our sin. God will not count our sin against us because on the cross, Jesus died the death our sins deserved. Because of that, God takes the righteous record that belonged to his son, and he credits that to all who will trust in him. God can eagerly jump to forgive us. He can do that without compromising his perfect standard because Jesus willingly took our punishment in our place at the cross. This is the way, this is the only way that sin can be taken seriously and we can receive real, meaningful, objective pardon. Now this is my testimony, David says to us. This is how God has dealt with me. Now come experience it yourself. Sort of like when uh, you were kids, you and your siblings uh, were were playing and you did something wrong, maybe you broke something, you realize we got to tell mom and dad, so what do you do, right? There's only one thing to do, you send the youngest kid into mom and dad and you tell them to tell them about it and see how it goes, right? And if they come back out and say that, well, dad's not too mad, you head in, if not, you take off. Well, it's as if King David has come out the back door and he says to us, oh, go into dad. Don't hide any longer. Come clean to him. He will deal with you graciously. Go into dad. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you at a time when you may be found, David says. There's three main ways that David wants us to respond to his story, his testimony of receiving God's forgiveness. And the first response that he gives to us is he wants us to receive God's forgiveness ourselves. And so he calls us to confess our sins to God. The happiness, David says, of knowing that all of our sins, all of our transgressions, all of our iniquity are covered, removed, cast away, gone forever. It can be be yours today. Think of the thing that you are most ashamed of in your life. The thing you wish that no one would ever know. The thing that you hope no one would ever bring up. The thing that you wish you could go back and you could delete from your story. Now, think not just of that darkest of moments, but think of the many other moments where you feel guilt and shame for. And God comes along and he says, Inadmissible. Inadmissible. Forgiven. Righteous. This can be yours, David says. Call out to God as David did. And don't waste time, don't put it off. David says, the joy is too great. The relief is too profound. Some people think that they'll just deal with sin and make confession before God later. I'll get around to that. But David says, don't wait. If you were facing criminal charges in a civil court and you were offered a pardon, you wouldn't delay going to court to get your record expunged, would you? No, you'd do it right away, right? You want this secured, dealt with, done. You'd want an innocent verdict. Why then would you delay in having your sins erased in the courtroom of heaven? And why should you presume that you'll just be able to do it later? No one knows what tomorrow will bring. Only God knows. You don't know whether you're going to be alive tomorrow or not. You don't know when you come to the day of your death whether your mind will be sharp and clear or whether you'll be confused and frightened and distracted. But what you can know is that today he may be found if you call upon him. Today, because Jesus died for sinners like yourself, you can have a clean record, a purified conscience, confidence before God and men concerning the day of judgment. And this because Jesus died and was raised for sinners like you and me, if you call upon him. This was the first response David calls us to. The second response is found in verses 8 and 9. We confess our sin to God and then we humble ourselves to receive his instruction. Commentators are divided whether it's God or David speaking in these verses, but whether it's God speaking uh, directly to his people or whether it's God speaking through his his chosen king, either way, the basic point is the same. God promises to instruct his forgiven people how to live. Notice then that forgiveness is not a a box to be uh, checked so that we can just go on living life the way that we want to. If we've truly understood what it means for God to forgive us, then you won't be a stubborn mule, David says, resisting God's leadership. That's what we are when we seek to go against God. We're stubborn mules. We're ignorantly thinking that we can just go our own way and that God cannot, that he will not ultimately subdue us. The forgiven person, though, uh, who's received God's forgiveness, he's instructed by God. He's led by God. Her ear is open to God's instruction as it's found in the Bible. She wants to learn, how does does God, the one who has pardoned all of my sins, how, how how does he want me to live? His conscience and will is sensitive to God's wisdom, though they're not sinless because God has forgiven them. They don't want to live for themselves, but they want to live for the God who has forgiven them and counted them righteous in his son. The forgiven person responds by humbly receiving God's instruction from his word. And the third and final response the psalm calls us to is to rejoice. Those who confess their sin, trusting in the Lord's promise, are surrounded by his steadfast love and kindness, the psalmist says. His love hems us in, surrounds us, like battlements, like ramparts, like walls around us protecting us. It secures us. Therefore, David says, rejoice be glad, shout for joy. Ian Murray, in his biography of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous English preacher, tells the story of a man who was converted under Dr. Lloyd-Jones' ministry in Wales. The man was known by the nickname Staffordshire Bill. Uh, Bill was uh, 70 years old, and he was a foul-mouthed drunk. And Bill was sitting in the local club or, or bar uh, when he heard some men there gathered and they were talking about the sermon, and they, they, uh, Bill heard these men uh, repeat what the preacher had said that nobody was hopeless. And for some reason, this pricked Bill's heart and he was captivated. And so he went to church uh, the next Sunday, uh, but then his nerves got to him as he reached the, the fence by the, the church's door and he turned around and went home. And the next Sunday, he went back and he gets to the doors of the church and he hears the singing. And he realizes he's late and so again he he goes home and the third Sunday he he comes back again and he's wavering at the door and someone uh, comes past him and he says Bill why don't you come in and and sit with me and that Sunday evening Bill heard the message about Christ preached by Dr. Lloyd-Jones and God worked in Staffordshire Bill's heart so that he believed the message that I'm preaching to you this morning and as he heard The good news of the forgiveness of sins as it's found in Jesus' peace flooded into Bill's heart, as he knew that he, even he, could have his sins covered because of Jesus. And from that point forward, said one who knew of Bill, his old battered face was transformed and radiant with inner joy. The joy of forgiveness, the joy of having your sins covered and pardoned and atoned for, of not having them counted against you, but being counted righteous in Christ. What's the path to happiness? It's simple but narrow. It's the path walked by David, by all the saints of Scripture, and walked by men like Staffordshire Bill. It's seeing our sin before God. It's confessing our sin to God. It's trusting in the promises of God because of the one given to us by God. And all of this so that we can receive the pardon from God and that we might be reconciled to God. Or if I could just put it plainer still, bring your sins Bring your guilt to Jesus. Don't be afraid. Don't wait. He stands ready to forgive you. The Bible says that this is the path, the only path to forgiveness. And it's open to you today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a God who does not call us to miserable things, but you are a God who makes known to us path makes known to us pathways of joy, pathways of blessedness. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 32, which tells sinful people like us that we can be forgiven and pardoned and reconciled to you. And I pray, Lord, for everyone within the hearing of my voice, that they would trust in the promises of Jesus and know this happiness which you hold out to us today. Lord, help us to rejoice in it, delight in it, where we have perhaps our, um, just our joy and our salvation has grown sluggish and dull. We pray, Lord, that you would rejuvenate that and refresh us by reminding us through this message what a wonderful thing it is to have you say to us, forgiven, accepted. This, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me as we sing our song of response, delighting in the power of the cross by which we are forgiven.